I'm your host, Alexander Hefner, and you're listening to the audio podcast of The Open Mind. I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. I'm delighted to welcome our guest today, Gregory Morgan. He's author of the new book, Cancer Virus Hunters, and he is a historian of science at the Stevens Institute of Technology in New Jersey. Welcome, Gregory. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, It's a pleasure. I know you've been working on this project for many years. If you go into the index of interviews you've done, you see that sometimes multiple interviews over the span of multiple years. Um, In the process of writing about chronicling, hunting the cancer virus, what changed you know because the science is protean it's evolving about like deciphering or detecting what are the viruses that cause cancer so in the course of the research for this book what actually changed in in fact that you were learning new things as you were writing yeah so so the book is sort of a an exploration of about a century of research going back to the beginning of the 20th century um I think one of the biggest changes that happened was that uh, in the beginning, people were very skeptical that viruses could cause cancer. Um, the, the, the mainstream view was that that was kind of a fringe theory and that there were better explanations of the cause of cancer. Um, and then as the century progressed, uh, the tide kind of turned and, and people became aware that at least some cancers were caused by viruses. Um, and it became a more productive area of research for a lot of people. So take, give our viewers the historical overview of, of this story of virus hunting. Um, who was the first person to investigate the cause of cancer as a virus or as viruses? Right. Um, well, I, I begin in the story with a, um, an American uh, physician, scientist, called um, Peyton Rouse. Um, He worked at um, what's now Rockefeller University. And um, he was interested in what he called experimental pathology. Like why do we have certain pathologies and can we explain it? Um, And at the time, the the nature of cancer was pretty mysterious. No one had a really good theory about why people got cancer, um, what caused it, what actually it was, or were there any ways of stopping it or, um, or, or treating cancer? And so it was sort of a lucky accident that started his research. Uh, a, a chicken breeder brought him a chicken that had a large tumor in its breast, and he decided he would investigate this. So he, he took the tumor out of the chicken um, and he ground it up. And then he started doing experiments on it by injecting it into other chickens. And he found that he could create tumors in other chickens from an extract from this this, this original tumor. So that was the beginning of it. So there was at least some tumors in chickens that could be caused by uh, a liquid that he extracted from other tumors. This, This started in 1909. And he worked on it for several years, eventually, um, gave up working on it because partly because the tools that he needed weren't invented yet. Um, and he, he didn't call it a virus. He was quite, he was a little worried about calling it a virus, but um, he just called it an agent. And it was unclear of the nature of the agent either. Um, wasn't sure if it was a biological agent or maybe it was a chemical agent. Um, so he was the first person that started it. Um, 
And then uh, others joined in. Um, there was some work on mice and some work on rabbits, uh, where we found uh, tumors in rabbits that could sort of do the same thing. And the big molecular biology was sort of starting up in the, in the 40s and 50s. We had electron microscopy invented so we could actually see what uh, was causing, what was in the, in the fluid that he had that would cause the tumors. And it looked like it was a small spherical object that we today would call a virus. Now, differentiating between the theory and the fact, what can we say now definitively, unequivocally, is fact as it relates to the cause of cancer and the role of viruses and what percent right. that is? Yeah, so I think that the conventional view now, which is, um, is that cancer is caused by mutated genes, um, and they're often called oncogenes. Um, and the causes of those mutations can be various things that can be environmental. Um, it can be an infection from a virus that brings you those genes. Um, and uh, which genes are mutated that cause cancer uh, can be well, first determined by looking at these viruses, because it turned out the virus that Peyton Rouse isolated had picked up a gene from an earlier chicken infection and that gene mutated, and then when it was turned on in, in, in chicken cells, it would cause tumors. So that was the first uh, oncogene, it's called SARC. And um, a number of people got a Nobel Prize for learning more about what SARC did and why it was this particular stretch of DNA that mattered. Um, so we definitively know, I think, that cancer involves mutations and particular genes in our genome. Um, and yeah, there's a, a number of different causes of them. I mean, interestingly, we now have kind of brought together two different views of, the, of cancer. There used to be a view that it was a, a cause from the outside of us, right? The environment caused cancer. And, and a competing view was that it was actually caused by something inside of us, an internal view, something gone wrong with one of our you know, homeostatic systems inside our bodies. Um, mutated DNA allows us to sort of uh, unify those two different views because obviously it's the uh, it's our DNA in our cells that's the problem, but that can be caused by things from the outside too, like smoking or you know sunbathing or just generally aging. And it's that enigma that has puzzled people for decades, centuries. The 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 fact that there is not a a magic bullet. Um, in, in the cure or treatment of uh, cancers, but are you able to specify when it comes to the mutation, because all cancers derive that way, right? As a result of, of cells basically gone awry, right? Are you able to decipher like what percent of those mutations are a result of um the, the, the viruses specifically? Yes, actually, all those estimates that about, about a fifth of all cancers are caused by viruses. You said um, a fifth? A fifth, yeah, about 20%. Yeah. And, um, and the other the other 80%? And the other 80 are going to be other environmental mutagens. Um, yeah, and maybe even some of the genes that you inherit from your parents that could be mutations that predispose you to cancer. Um, yeah, so it's going to be more of an environmental um, explanation for most of those. 
And is yeah, it twenty percent? And, and, and some of the viruses, some of our viewers may have heard of, like human papilloma virus, which mm -hmm. causes uh, cervical cancer or um, throat cancer. Um, there's also hepatitis B virus, which causes uh, liver cancer in some people. And you talked about a magic bullet. And in some sense, we have a magic bullet for these now too, because we now have vaccines for both of these viruses. So if you get vaccinated against them before you're infected by the virus, you can stop yourself getting cervical well, cancer. Well, in, in a sense, are these, have these been the most accessible targets, the 20% the we're referring to? Because the other 80% is more of a mysterious origin and, and harder to kind of get to the bottom of. And so how has this, this generation or these generations of virus hunters informed the way, was my next question to you, that we're treating, first, I want you to talk about the 20% because I think that's easier to understand, right. but then the other 80% too. Right. So I guess there's two parts to that. I mean, if if 20% of, of, of cancer is caused by viruses, then if we can vaccinate ourselves against those viruses, make good vaccines, then we can effectively cure cancer for that 20%. That won't do anything for the other 80%, of course. Um, but what, what, what the study of these viruses actually did was give us like a foothold into what parts of the genome are broken in cancer cells. Um, so in theory, that should lead us to having better therapeutics since we know what we're sort of looking for now. And it sort of narrowed the search for what type of drugs might be useful. If we can target some of these genes that are broken, um, then in theory, we could come up with some, some good therapeutics. Um, we're not quite there yet, right? Um, but I, I envisage this is what 21st century biomedicine will be doing is, is it getting better drugs that will target some of these broken genes or even even genetic therapy where we introduce like correct genes and to replace the broken ones. Can you explain to me again how the virus hunting, the, the, the uh, understanding of the viruses, it, you were making the argument that it in theory should help with the 80%. Right. And it, and it has to do with how cells break down and studying how the viruses cause those mutations. Is that right? Yes. And also that because when a virus takes over a cell, um, it turns that cell into a factory to make more viruses, right? That's basically what a virus does. It just right. invades the cell, turns it into a virus factory that makes more viruses. They escape and they infect more cells. Um, the way in which the virus genes and proteins interact with the cellular proteins is really important um, for the virus, but it also is, is important for scientists because they can see that, that, that cellular proteins that interact with the viral ones are the important ones to, in what's called the cell cycle, making a, making a cell basically reproduce at the right rate. And in cancer cells, uh, the cells are not reproducing at the right rate. They're reproducing too fast. Right. Um, and, those, and those proteins that interact with the viral proteins are in every cell we have, and they can go awry when, when infected with a virus, say, but also just on their own um, for other reasons. Now, when you hear about immunotherapies or the idea of, of creating a virus that's going to, correct me if I'm wrong, that would potentially be equipped to kill that 80, you know, the 
Right. right. You could you could build a virus to kill the cancer cells or the cancer from forming in the first place. But it, when you t- take us through kind of the idea of immunotherapy right. and, and also this idea of whether or not you could create viruses that in, in essence serve as a remedy um, that could combat that 80%, right? Right. Yeah. So I, I call my book Cancer Virus Hunters, um, partly because I think we the last century has been sort of the hunting phase of virology or tumor virology. But now we're moving into what I call the agricultural era, where we're re- we can re-engineer viruses to do different things and to sort of serve our purposes. So in immunotherapy, we use our immune systems to try and attack cancer cells. Uh, but we can also do what's sometimes called virotherapy, where we re-engineer a virus so it only attacks cancer cells. That would be the goal. And it leaves healthy cells alone. It doesn't do anything to those. So there's maybe many ways of doing that, many ways of re-engineering the virus to do that. It could be that um, cancer cells of a particular type of cancer express a protein on their surface, and then you, you make the virus so it only attacks that protein. Or um, because cancer cells are have broken oncogenes inside them, right? Um, genes that uh, make this, the internal composition of the cell different. You can make viruses that will only replicate in those types of cells in theory. And there's a number of people doing this. I think I did a search recently. There's about 50 clinical trials currently going on at the moment to see if they can successfully make a virus that will only attack cancer cells. Um, yeah, but we're not, I, there's only one or two that have been approved around the world. Um, so, but we're sort of on the cusp of this happening. Um, if this yeah. is a feasible strategy, then yeah. then presumably there's a number of ways of doing it and yeah. there'll have to be different viruses for different cancers. I mean, no offense by this to the scientific community, but I feel like we've been hearing we're on the cusp of it yeah. for a while. And obviously in the COVID era, We've been told that too on the cusp of, you know, vaccinating to live freely and mobile, free of a virus or fear from virus, and that's not really the case. But I feel like in the in the cancer space prior to COVID's emergence, that was one where we we constantly have been hearing from Lori Glimcher and other people we've hosted. We're on the cusp. Is right. is this a different cusp? Or, <laughs> um. Well, of course, it's always hard to predict, especially the future, right? Um, but, and we have had the war on cancer in the 1970s. We had a, actually a war on cancer going back into the 1950s as well. Um, I'm hopeful that we are on a slightly different uh, era than we were. Um, the power of uh, recombinant technologies gives us a lot more tools than we had in the past. But I, I don't. I don't think I'm, I'm not. I'm not hopeful that we'll get like a silver bullet that will cure that will you know cure all cancers. I, I rather see some cancers more amenable to this type of therapy than others, and so it will be sort of gradual treatments where we'll slowly be getting better, better treatments, better survival rates. Uh, but to how long, how far away that is, it's hard to say. People, you know, like to say ten or twenty years, maybe. Um, of course, as you say, that's a sufficiently long period, so you won't be able to track me down and say you were wrong <laughs> uh, when it doesn't pan out. Um, you know, when when you think of 
that characterization, um, is it fair, the, the characterization that I just offered about these periods that have, have given false hope? Well, I think that um, perhaps in, perhaps years ago, we underestimated how complex cancer was and how different different cancers are. So it's not really one disease that we're trying to attack, right? It's a right. multitude of diseases. And that was um, perhaps the failure in uh, behaving as though you could cure or treat it, it with a silver or magic bullet. Um, but right. in, in your book, you focus on this thesis that tumor virology metamorphosized biomedicine. It, it as a result of studying tumors, biomedicine has forever changed. And I wanted to give you an opportunity to expound on that point. Right. Well, I think that our, our view of cancer today is, is, is informed directly from all this research. Um, what viruses allowed us to do in the past was like isolate a small piece of DNA and see what it does when you inject it into a cell, because that's what viruses basically do. Um, so the contemporary view that I think basically any oncologist would give you is that you've got these important genes in the cell that are mutated in cancer cells. Um, that comes from the study of uh, tumor viruses because they, they either had oncogenes um, inserted into their own genomes or they interacted with other proteins that are really important in turning a cell from a normal cell into a, into a cancer cell. So for example, just to give an example, um, uh, today, uh, um, it's, if you're at a very uh, good cancer center, you can, take, you can have uh, your tumors sequenced to see which, which genes have been mutated and, and then your therapy can be tailored to you to know which drugs are going to work best for you. Um, I don't think any of that would have happened without tumor virology. Um, and so it, it's sort of a, a, I think it's a victory for what you might call reductionism in biology because you're looking at a very, very simple system. And once you understand that system, you then try and apply some of the lessons to more complicated systems like human cells. What's your hope in terms of the reaction of the scientific community to your book uh, and to the chronicling of that history? What's your hope that they will glean from it? Yeah, um, well, I, I wrote the book in part because I thought that there's a lot of interesting characters in this history. A lot of these scientists are interesting people in their own right. But I, I also wanted to counter what I see as sort of an anti-science sentiment uh, emerging in our culture. And I think part of it is driven because most people don't actually know scientists, right? The average person isn't friends with biomedical scientists. They don't know any of those people. Um, so I thought that my book, which sort of focuses on the biographies of a number of these important scientists, would give you a picture into what, what motivates these people, why they did what they did, um, and sort of humanize the science in a way, right? So these people by and large don't have ulterior motives. They're really just interested in learning how cells work and how viruses work, how they reproduce themselves. Um, and it has this uh, consequence that we can, un through a better understanding how our cells work, uh,
direct our, our, our research enterprise towards more likely better drugs. Um, so I'm hoping that knowing the history will help the average person as well as people that work in oncology think more about the tra trajectory of research. Um, one of the themes that comes out is that big breakthroughs take a long time, right? So I've cover I'm covering over a you know, hundred years of research and it was sort of the sustained focus for decades and decades before you get progress. I think in today's world, we, we kind of want things to happen really, really quickly, but uh, sometimes it just takes a long time, um, and, but we shouldn't give up. I'm struck by your comments about the American people not knowing scientists. And I don't know if you meant that in a specific US context or more broadly, uh, folks uh, in any country, in any part of the world, not- yeah, That's um, probably more true more broadly, I think. Mm -hmm. And your, your point in telling the stories was to reveal the inner humanity and kind of shared values of scientists. And you clearly feel that there is a disconnect here. Is that something that predates the pandemic? I think, um, I mean, the anti-vaccine movement is a good example of this, right? I mean, it obviously got stronger during the pandemic. Um, but there are a lot of people who just won't uh, accept mainstream advice, right? Or they think that anything coming out of a pharmaceutical company is corrupt because they are only in it to make money. Um, I think that predates the pandemic. I think the pandemic's kind of made it worse and it seems like it's been politicized as well. So um, depending on your political leanings, you, you can kind of predict where some people, where some people will be on you know, getting vaccinated against COVID. Um, but a lot of the basic research that I cover is done by individual scientists who don't, aren't in it for the money, right? Um, they're not really in it, even in it for the fame, I don't think. Of course, they're people like us, but they are just interested in understanding how nature works, um, which is something we all kind of share, perhaps, at some level. Well, I, I would hope that you're thesis is correct, um, but the stigma that is um, rubs folks the wrong way, um, that is the ulterior motive, whether that's uh, financial or world domination, uh, which financial is a piece of, um, what is, is it born out of a, of a cynicism, of a conspiratorial outlet, outlook, um, what to you is the is the genesis of that? Um, and, and is it fair to say that in, if you look at the global economy and our present capitalist system, that there is enough evidence of of the of the ulterior motive of the of the opposite of what you're saying being true? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's a really tough question to answer. I think, um, but. It seems to me some of it's got to be driven by the fact that technology has got us into trouble with all sorts of things, right? Like technology brought us nuclear weapons, um, that brought us microplastics in the ocean. Um, a lot of health concerns maybe are driven by technology too. Um, so there's been a lot of cases of things where 
technology hasn't been uniformly good for the humans. Um, but I think it's a mistake to think that it's uniformly bad, right? There's going to be cases where technology does give us ways to extend our lives and improve them. And in the, in the closing minute or two that we have, what is one story to you that um, can be a, a very purposeful and useful anecdote or, or account that shows the, the likeness of the scientist as one of us? Okay, let, let me tell you the story about Ludwig Gross. He, he was a Polish physician um, working just before the beginning of the Second War. He fled before the Nazis could catch him. <laughs> he was Jewish. Um, and he fled to Poland and then he fled to the United States. And he was convinced actually that practically all cancers are caused by viruses. And he came to the United States. He signed up for the military. He, was, um, he became Captain Ludwig Gross. And while he was serving, he still ran experiments on mice. He was trying to work out if uh, he could find viruses that caused cancer in mice. And he actually succeeded in doing this, but he had very little support. And at one point he, 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 was, he had a mouse colony inside the, the trunk of his car and he was running experiments on the side in the back of his car. And almost everybody thought he was uh, misguided, right? That he was, he was a kook at the time. But he, he, he like persisted and he actually found two viruses, um, one that's quite well known called polyoma virus that caused cancer. And so that was a turning point in the 1950s when after, after these discoveries and we could, reproduce, um, we could reproduce cancers being caused in mice by this virus that he discovered, um, it became a legitimate field. Um, so he's sort of one of my heroes of the story. He was sort of seen as an underdog but persisted with this idea and was eventually vindicated. Well, Greg, I want to thank you for sharing the story of Cancer Virus Hunters. I urge our viewers to check out Gregory Morgan's new book, Cancer Virus Hunters, A History of Tumor Virology. Uh, really appreciate your insight and perspective today, Greg. Thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed it a lot. Please visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind to view this program online or to access over 1,500 other interviews. And do check us out on Twitter and Facebook at Open Mind TV for updates on future programming. Continuing production of The Open Mind has been made possible by grants from Ann Olnick, Joan Gans Cooney, Lawrence B. Benenson, the Engelson Family Foundation, Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, Joanne and Kenneth Wellner Foundation, and from the corporate community, Mutual of America.